This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, via Giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We are continuing our Gunbuster Book Club with Volume 2, in which we talk about the two translated short stories. I am joined by our previous guest, whom I'll introduce in just one second. I want to make a note here, though. Listeners, thank PMC, because PMC could be playing Armored Core 6 right now. We're recording this on Thursday, the 24th. The game has been out for a few hours for PC users, but PMC is so loyal, so dedicated, that he accommodated our schedules and graced us with his presence. I can't even describe... I I literally will not tell you the things that have happened that have interfered with my ability to play Armored Core 6 over the next few days. Um, But you know what? I'm going to persevere through it. And let's be honest here. In the long run, you know, games will get played. It, we'll, we'll, we'll persevere. Hard work and guts. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being here. Though, to, to be fair, I wasn't being sarcastic. I was going to DM PMC earlier today. I was like, yeah, if you want to bail from the record to play Armored Core 6, feel free. Suddenly, I leave hey. the call. No. <laughs> <laughs> leave like the call, I specifically to play the Pacific Rim game yeah. on XPLA. I just boot up boot up the real Steel game and Ukes. It's a Ukes night. Yeah, Have from a game listing on Twitch I'm Core 6. <laughs> now, Ethan, I'm going to jump to you because you uh, spoke up there. Ethan Hawker returns. Uh, Ethan, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, happy to be back to discuss more uh, fine literature with you guys. Speaking of fine literature, Ethan, do you think we're going to top your lascivious Pepsi discovery from last episode? Uh, no, however, uh, there is a an extremely funny image uh, in in the first short story uh, that I'm sure we're going to end up discussing um, in in great detail, both for its comic value and its its larger thematic value. Ooh. <laughs> I'm, I was I was pleased to see your tweet make the rounds. Yeah, no, I was waiting. It it, it took everything in me to wait until that uh, episode actually came out for it too just because I, I wanted to let somebody else have the the opportunity but that line that line was too good not to share and i hope it uh as with those things like i always think of the the eto gue meme from um you're under arrest and like i like to imagine at least like one one or two people ended up watching you're under arrest because of that my, my hope is that at least a, a few people ended up reading the gunbuster novels just because they were so curious about young's pepsi <laughs> i hope so um did you feel the heat coming off that passage? Like, did you know it was going to do well? <laughs> I, I I think it was, yeah, because I just, I reread it several times uh, in a row, just trying to process everything it said. And like, like, I, I would not sure like how immediately like a text passage, like people would be able to glom onto as opposed to like an image or like a manga panel or a screenshot. But, uh, but no, the, the people were willing to, to do the work. The, they, they read Young Freud and Pepsi and they had to know more uh, and they learned more, probably more than they wanted to. <laughs> but of course it's not just the three of us idion you're joining us again thank you so much for returning to the podcast i'm glad we didn't scare you off i'm back thank you for having me you're <laughs> you are the guest of honor because your label labor was uh, essential to producing these episodes because without your translation work we would have no, no gunbuster literature to talk about <laughs> I'm, I'm i am glad that pepsi 
passage has <laughs> has legs <laughs> so to speak yeah that, that's um that's been a big one especially i mean at the time just as something i was passing around my own friend group and you know the reaction with of them was you know what i expected so I'll give you a little preview for our one-year war summer stream. On the way to PMC's house, I'm going to stop at Wawa and pick up some Pepsis. Can't I can't guarantee PMC will drink them? Probably not, but I will. But I'll have I'll, my the meme will be having two Pepsis on screen throughout the entire stream. There's a way you could get yeah with like a like a Red Bull fridge right at an esports event instead we just yeah. have the two Pepsis in the background. <laughs> I do have a portable fridge because that's how my wife stores her milk. Uh, not, not to put too fine a point on it, but it is in our is in our house. It can, mm-hmm. It's not too big though. It can only, you know what? It, can, it might not even be able to, uh, big enough to store two Pepsi's. <laughs> now, sp- before I have to transition awkwardly here back to Gunbuster literature, but before we jump into the two short stories, the topics of our conversation today, Idian, you are working on a few Gunbuster related things. Yes, and would you be so gracious to talk about them? For sure. Um, so I'm always juggling or trying to juggle a few things at any given time. As far as Gunbuster goes, I've been slowly, very slowly, making my way through the Next Generation novel, which is also by one of the authors that we'll be talking about today. Um, That book is broken up in a way that really doesn't make it ideal for chapter posts, because it's really just four chapters, four very long chapters. So my current thinking is that I'll just, you know, when it's done, I'll put it out, and I'm about halfway done with it at the moment. Um... So maybe spring, you know, spring would be nice, hopefully. <laughs> um, now, Idian, would you recommend, re- if, if and when we ever cover Die Buster, would you recommend reading Next Generation before we start watching Die Buster? I know you said it's been a while since you've seen Die Buster. So the thing that I, Die Buster is set, this is a spoiler for Die Buster, maybe I shouldn't even say this, <laughs> but there's there's a very big length of time mm-hmm. between... Um, Next Generation and Die Buster, enough that while you might have some of the same structures, and I mean, I think they mentioned Sirius and some other things that might come up in that in the Next Generation framework, it's there's so much time that it's really. I mean, I would it'd be great if you read it, but I wouldn't say it's probably not critical for all but the most curious or you know. <laughs> That's the only invitation I need. Consider it, <laughs> consider it done. We'll conv- reconvene the council if so, <laughs> we're all on this planet. <laughs> if this planet's still around, I should say. <laughs> By the way, um, if anyone is interested uh, in sort of a basic outline of what Next Generation is, there are some a couple blog posts that I have up that sort of go into detail about how the world is set up and some of the events of the timeline that if anyone, speaking of the morbidly curious, you know, that stuff is out there. I read a bit of the information you have on your website about Next Generation, and obviously I thought it was a direct TNG reference, and I'm sure that plays a factor. Oh, it sure, yeah, it is. It's that, but and, the, yeah. the next computer blew mm-hmm. my mind. Was that popular in Japan? I don't have a good answer for that. I guess it was popular enough to uh, <laughs> That's like for the them to latch onto it as a as a point of reference. And then this is also something I talked about a little in the last episode, and this is even further away in the future, but I would really like to do the Gunbuster Choose Your Own Adventure book, the game book, and... Oh, hell yeah. I'm sort of 
you know, I have some ideas about how I would want to present interactive fiction, since that's, you know, kind of a, a step removed from a novel. But, you know, and speaking, I have, I have kind of a small pile of these game books, um, so, you know, it's the sort of thing where if I got the format down, I feel like I could, you know, sort of crank out more of them. But that's, you know, that's way in the future. I'm not even really... You know, I translated, you know, sort of for myself, like how the rules worked. I did like the first 30 pages just to get a feeling for it. And I was like, okay, this seems doable. And then aside from Gunbuster, I'm putting up a couple chapters each month of Secret Rendezvous, which is the Tomino Gundam novella. I'm trying to finish that by January. Um, and I also put out something every month called World's End Barrel which is the very last thing I need to do to be completely free of For the Barrel. And <laughs> then there's, you know, commissions and the occasional stuff that I just find, like interviews, I think, oh, that's interesting. Maybe someone else wants to read this. So, Oh, I, I'm definitely one of those people, uh, especially when it coincides with a the topic of a history episode. I uh, devour primary research, so I'm always appreciative of the people doing that work. All right, let's let's jump right into the two short stories that we'll be covering today. So the first short story is called Top Gunbuster, and it was published in 1989, the same year as the two Gunbuster novels, and the same year as the third volume. I'm not sure when volume two, episodes three and four came out, but I definitely know that five and six came out in 1989. So I don't have too much historical context on my end for these short stories, but I have a little to provide structure for the episode. So as I've mentioned before, and as I'll mention again in a future episode, Bondi, the principal investor of Gunbuster, locked up the merchandising rights for the six-episode OVA. So it should come as no surprise that there was a multimedia blitz to accompany its release, both for promotional and obvious money-making reasons. Not only were there trading cards, novels, model kits, and other assorted tchotchke, but short stories, too. The first of which, or at least the first we're going to be talking about, Top Gunbuster, was published in Cyber Comics in 1989. So Cyber Comics has come up on Giant Robot FM before. If you've listened to our Zardian episode, you might remember it. But we should provide some context. Idion, can you tell us what this publication, what this magazine was? Absolutely. And just like my last appearance, I've brought a stack of notes. So I ask for your audience to put up with me. <laughs> oh, don't worry. The, the, our, our, our audience eats that shit up. <laughs> All right. So Cyber Comics was a comic anthology published by Bandai from 1988 to 1992, based on a proposal made to them for a specialty Gundam comic magazine by the newly established editorial wing of General Products. Um, at that time, General Products had already been doing some editing for another one of Bandai's monthly magazines. And so, as you can imagine, the content was very Gundam-heavy, along with some other Legacy Sunrise franchises, but there were also a lot of original comics, plus a decent amount of Gainax coverage and contributions from Gainax-connected artists, which I assume is because General Products were the ones that were making it. Among those, I think the most notable is probably... Um, Ikuto Yamashita's original manga, Dark Whisper. Uh, Yamashita was a mechanical designer 
on the last two episodes of Gunbuster, and after working on Nadia, he had his probably most famous role, which was designing the Ava units, along with the rest of the mechanical designs for Evangelion. So Cybercomics was supposed to be a monthly periodical, but there were issues with keeping that schedule because it was really more than General Products was able to handle. And Classic General Products, right? So even Inability they, to meet a deadline. Even though they staffed up specifically to do this, you know, towards the very end, Bandai just took things took them off it completely. And if you remember in the last episode, I mentioned a Studio Hard. They come up here again. Studio Hard was a um, a company that was an ed- editorial production company. They focused on print, magazines, and books. And so they, they took over Cyber Comics. But, you know, so there were a total of 47 issues of Cyber Comics, and General Products' name is only absent from, like, the last 10 so, you know, they did, they got sort of most of the way there. And based on my math, that was 47 episodes out of a possible 55. So it's a passing grade, but maybe not if you're doing, maybe missing your deadline eight times is over, you know, three or four years is not, you can see why Bandai was kind of fed up with them. Yeah. Um, so along with their own monthly, they also put out compiled versions of, the comics that ran in Cyber Comics, as well as other comics that ran in some of Bandai's other um, magazines. As and they also put out special one-offs like Comic Gunbuster and Comic Blue Water, and which is what the um, which is what the story comes from. But when you think of the Gundam comics from the early '90s, a lot of them either came from Cyber Comics or MS Saga, which was. Bandai's replacement for Cyber Comics once they had fully given them the boot. And so, comics like Hidden Shadow of G, Magical Enzyme Blaster Mari, uh, Gundam vs. Giant God of Legend, Under the Gundam Double Fake, Outer Gundam, Gundam F90, Silhouette Formula 91, and Kazuhisa Kondo's um, 0079 manga, which was released in the US. Uh, those are all series that either ran in or were published, had their complete editions published by Cyber Comics. Those are some great names there. I feel like you're listing off obscure PlayStation JRPGs, <laughs> but that's a mark of quality. I should mention for Job John fans, I do think F90 was the one that had Job John, Elder Job John in it. So, you know, if that's interesting, <laughs> check that out. <laughs> yeah, the the Mobile Suit versus Giant God of Legend is the the well known as the the Gundam versus Edeon <laughs> comic, um, which is rules. I like it a lot, uh, despite it being kind of funky. So Nozaki Toru, who has also come up on a giant robot episode before, I'm not going to spoil which episode, we'll get there. Now, he wrote Top Gun Buster. Edan, tell us about Toru, like what else has he written? What is What are his claims to fame? So Toru is a very hard person to get a handle on and to track down. It sounds like I'm going to be reading a lot, but I am literally about to go over this man's entire career. So, <laughs> um, He's an author and a game writer. The only thing I know for sure about him as a person is that he was born in Hokkaido, and that he was a freelance writer who found himself frequently working alongside Gainax. Uh, his name shows up in Cyber Comics before Top Gun Buster, but I believe that Top Gun Buster is his first solo debut work. Um... 
and then he wrote his debut novel, which was Aim for the Top Next Generation um, the next year, which was 1990. He was also the scriptwriter for Gainax's 1990 PC game, Silent Mobius Case Titanic. Uh, he also wrote a fantasy guidebook to dragons around the same time, which got a Chinese language release in 2004. I even bought this book, the, the Japanese version, not the Chinese one. I don't. I don't read Chinese. <laughs> I even bought this book hoping to find out more about him, but there's no about the author blurb in that book. Um, it does have a couple, he does thank a few other Gynax staff members, and there is another Gynax connection there because the illustrator for that book was Hajime Sato, who was an artist who worked on a lot of game arts games like the Lunar series and Grandia 3. Sato designed the creatures for the Gynax Connected games Alicia Dragoon, which is by Game Arts, and Zardion, which is not by Game Arts. Did you ever did you talk about Alicia Dragoon on this podcast? Yeah, in the Zardion episode. Okay. Um, a lot Maybe, of interesting um, cross pollination uh, there. And that was the one I listened to, so I I'm sorry for asking. <laughs> we didn't talk about it long, don't worry. <laughs> um most of the Gainax employees Sonozaki thanks in that book are from the game side, but one name he does mention is Yoshimi Kanda, who he seems to have a good relationship with. Um, Kanda has some support-related credits on Oneamis and Gunbuster, and he wore a whole lot of hats on Otaku no Video. Kanda was the one who wrote Alicia Dragoon and came up with the original concept for Zardion. And by the way, Kanda was a pen name and under his legal name, he was also the head of General Products Editorial Department and the Editor-in-Chief of Cyber Comics. So you can sort of see how that connection was made. Um, back to Sonozaki, in 1992, he, he wrote the first um, Galaxy Frontline Yuna game for the PC Engine and the novelization of Zardion. Uh, he released his first, and I think his only original novel, in 1995, which is called, in English, translated, um, the Sword of Volhad, the complete history of Regna Noltia, which people seem to remember more for the fully bare-chested goddess that Tsukasa Kotobuki drew on the cover. And then in 1997, he wrote another novelization for the fairy-raising sim, uh, Mercurius Pretty. And as an aside, I would like to say that the arc of Tsukasa Kotobuki's career is maybe my favorite thing ever because he basically defined what you think of as the 90s style of anime because mm. he did Saber Marionette and a, a whole lot of other stuff. But And now he's the guy that's basically in charge of Gundam The Origin. So, I, I mean, he was drawing Gundam comics back then as well. So, But his, his style has definitely shifted. Those two yeah, decades. it's like uh, starting out with Gunbuster, Giant Robo, the Lunar Games, and then the Origin. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm 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 all I'm all done with this. <laughs> he had um he had a lead creative position on the 1990 name on the 1999 PlayStation game um, London Spirit Detectives, which is Japanese only, and he was set to write and direct. But he had a fight with the game's producer, who was also the head of the production company, which led to him leaving that project. Famous, famous uh, modeler and creature designer uh, Yasushi Nirasawa, who did, you know, a lot of common... He's passed away, sadly, before his time, but he did, you know, a lot of the... Um, I don't know if we call them the later common writers, but 
He's, you know, he's very famous. Um, he was a creator, planner, writer, and executive director of the 2003 visual novel, novel Interlude, which was released on the Dreamcast, PlayStation 2, and Windows. Interlude also got a three-episode OVA, which was distributed in the U.S. by Genion for, you know, I guess... <laughs> it, it, it looked to me like one of those discs that you find in the bargain bin, but I haven't seen it. Maybe it's good. Uh, in 2004, it was announced that he was reprising his role as director and writer on the PlayStation 2 game Muragiri from the same developer as Interlude and featuring much of the same staff. But the game ended up being canceled due to a number of number of factors, including the sudden death of the character designer. Mm. Around this time, he appeared in the book Aim for the Top Next Generation Easter, which I, I talked about a little in the last episode, but this reprints his two stories and... Then a couple of years later, his name resurfaces again on the uh, Nintendo DS game Kingdom Hearts 358 Days Over 2, uh, after which he just completely disappears from the internet. Um, in 2022, a fan group working on his 30th anniversary Zardion project confirmed on Twitter that they were finally able to locate him after a lot of searching, but his current activities are not public and it's probably safe to think that he's retired from either writing and or the games industry entirely. The end. <laughs> That's pretty that good. That was a comprehensive overview. Yeah. I, I, I love doing that work, connecting those dots. I was looking up the London Spirit Detectives game. Detective game. This game looks rad. The sprite it work. Does look, it does look really cool. So maybe I imagine, you know, fan translators. You're always looking for stuff to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was doing a, when I was doing research for the multiple Zardian articles I published over on Zimmerit, and I was looking at Conda's credited list on Moby Games. This might be inaccurate, but he also has a plan. He might also have a planner credit on Tetris S for the Sega Saturn, and then it appeared to me, um, with ve- with little access to f- like primary sources, that. He just left the games industry. But yeah, for a while, he was working on a lot of Gynax-related projects, like Silent Mobius, which you mentioned, Zardian, Alicia Jagrun, and he has a credit on the Nadia game for the Mega Drive as well. Someone needs to be documented. So we, Someone needs to get Conda in a room with his consent and just, like, grill him with questions. So it's that funny later. that um, I was... I had seen this claim that it was a pen name, and it's it's only on a couple places on the internet, and I couldn't find anything to back it up. And in fact, the only thing I could find was this old Japanese blog post saying, there's this rumor that they're the same person, but there's no evidence, so I don't mm. think it's real. So I was like, I'm not going to run with this. And then as I'm flipping through this book, um, Next Generation Easter, he just comes out and says it, that they're the same person. And like, perfect, amazing. That's how serendipitous. I love that. Yeah, history. I've I've um, I have a history major. I I have a few majors. History major is one of them. And whenever I would talk to my history professors, there's this like eureka moment they have when they're doing research on an essay or a book, and basically it's what you just described. It's very fulfilling when it's something that just comes off your own bookshelf. <laughs> You're like, I yeah. didn't know that was there. It's a good thing I checked. I want that Zardian novel translated. I need the Zardian backstory in full. It's, a, it's another Patreon goal. Yeah, another Patreon goal. I'm available. 
There, there is a Zardian subreddit. You got to think one of those people has deep pockets. Zardian was one of the first games. I think it was the first game I got for my Super Nintendo when I got really? that. Really? Oh, and I was like, oh yeah, this is really cool. And then I played it for ten more minutes. I'm like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> it, it, that game has such a such a beautiful backstory. If only it was fun to play. <laughs> if, if it was just a little bit more good, or if it was like a Famicom game, it could get away with it. Yeah, but. yeah. It feels oh. like a Famicom game. Yeah, like Famicom very early Genesis. But, you know, alas, poor Zardion. Give, give, give me Zardion for the Amiga. Just punishingly <laughs> difficult. Now, before we talk about the the story itself, I do have one more note here. Because um, like with the Gunbuster novels, Top Gunbuster features original black and white illustrations to accompany the text. In this case, they were illustrated by... Nishimoto Seiji, an animator on Gunbuster. He also did key animation on Maddox Zero One and the third Aiko movie, which I believe is coincidentally the one with the mech. Aiko well, fans can correct me. They're all kind of the ones with the mech, but I, I know what you mean. It's there's, it's there's more, a bigger, more like more public, more like traditional mech, right? In that one, yeah, yeah. There's there's one that's more part of the focus in that one. Um, yeah, I was I. Very briefly looked through uh, Nishimoto's sort of um, filmography, and uh, there's a couple interesting things. Apparently, uh, he was an animation director on um, Birdie Wing. Uh, Shoutouts, because I feel like there are a lot of Birdie Wing heads. Uh, like his, his filmography is very scattered. He contributed to the absolutely hog wild uh, Ichiro Itano OVA uh, Battle Royale High School. Um, or Battle Royal High School. There's no E in that one. Uh, but it's it's a very weird, sort of just off-the-walls adaptation. Uh, Itano also famously directed uh, Angel Cop. So, you know, you can kind of attenuate your expectations thusly. Um, but uh, related to actually a game uh, that was uh, mentioned that um, uh, Toru actually did writing for, the Silent Mobius game, uh, Case Titanic. Uh, Nishimoto did uh, art for that as well um, and I was curious about it I looked up some uh, screenshots and as someone who doesn't know anything about Silent Mobius it seems wild in that it's it's literally about the Titanic apparently seemingly at least descending from the sky and the Silent Mobius team has to investigate the ruins of it like it's like a first person adventure game uh, sort of dealio um, with the uh, the characters of Silent Mobius uh, looking over it and apparently it was ported to like PS1, um, there was a French reviewer who was very harsh to it, did not like the Silent Mobius game, but uh, looks fascinating, don't know anything about Silent Mobius outside of that, that really good promo streamline put together with that and uh, Neo Tokyo slash Labyrinth Tales back in the day, but uh, I, would, I feel like this is the next step, it's watch that promo for the movie and then play the case Titanic game, the logical uh, progression here. Uh, but no, just sort of an interesting career, very eclectic kind of career, especially with a lot of Gynax, Gynax adjacent kind of stuff, with the Gravitron gang. Yeah, there's a lot of cross pollination between the Lunar series and Silent Mobius. The 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 game share the same writer, Keisha Gama, so that's pretty cool. I think I knew because I was a big Lunar fan as a kid. I knew that game existed based on those credits. But it has a fan base in Japan because it's brought up frequently uh, in fandom circles. Well, without further ado, let's talk about the short story. PMC, not to put you on the spot, give me like a quick summary of Top Gun Buster, the short story. Top Gun Buster 
is a story about coaches' experiences both being picked and selected to be a crew member of the Luxion, as well as the experience of being on the Luxion when the space monsters initially attack, both during the initial wave as well as the the moments. Basically, the like final moments of the short story are the flashback that we see in the uh, in the OVA. That was good. I didn't want to catch you unawares there. It's like when I call on a student in class, when I cold call on them for a bit of information. And you can imagine that if PMC didn't read the short story, he would be like, well, it's about gunbusters and space <laughs> and finding yourself amongst the stars, but also losing yourself amongst the stars. Top gunbuster, five out of five. Yeah, I would just do the, you've really got to aim for the top, Noriko, gunbuster. <laughs> I did re- I did read it. All right. All right, professor. You can't catch me. <laughs> now, like I mentioned last time in last week's episode, we're not going to go plot point by plot point. These short stories are as short stories are concise, but my notes are in chronological order and my co-host will also be chiming in with their own observations. So we're roughly going to go through the story as it is presented to you, the reader. But I definitely recommend going to Idion's website and reading it because it is worth it, especially Top Gun Buster, I think. Um, but both are worth a read. So when you open up to when you open your PDF to page one, you get a little short prologue, and then after that, chapter one opens with some historical context that's only gest- gestured at in the show. So and we talked a bit about this when we talked about nationalism and Gunbuster. But after the Second American-Japanese War ended in 2013, quote, humanity was united under a single banner, end quote, with the establishment of the Terran Empire, which sounds like something out of 40K. But before you think it's like some sort of utopic future, Imperial Japan is still very much a thing and obviously dictates global affairs. You could argue that's not unlike the United States, which exerts an outsized influence on geopolitics across the globe. I don't think it's intentional, but there's a historically grounded contradiction between the proclamation of intentional cooperation, or excuse me, uh, the proclamation of international cooperation and the reality of empire building in Gunbuster that's really interesting. Gunbuster is not really answered, interested in answering those questions, but it's there. And... Um, if they ever wanted to take another pass at Gunbuster, looking at this universe through another angle, that could be one possible angle. Steven, I have to pick on you very briefly because I am surprised I, that your go-to for what the Terran Empire makes you think of was 40K. Should I have said StarCraft? Star Trek? Star Trek. The Terran Empire is the name of the Mirror Universe Starfleet. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's Come true. On. Discovery Season 1. We're no, we're no longer a Star Trek podcast. We have to <laughs> take that banner off the wall. So this is actually... And I know you have more about Star Trek coming up. This is actually what I, I had this as a response. So this didn't... I really didn't have a place to mention this in the last episode. But Terran Empire is something I chose... I chose specifically because it is a Star Trek reference, and I didn't mm. feel that it was out of place. So the Japanese name is literally Earth Empire, and it's the Japanese title of Arthur C. Clarke's Imperial Earth. 
and I could never make that fit in a way that fit that felt good to me, either as Imperial Earth or Earth Empire. It just didn't sound right, and for all the purposes I needed it to work, it never worked. So I was like, well, I can just shift one reference into another, and so I, I felt okay mm. doing that. But that is, yes, that is specifically Star Trek, and that's also me doing that. But well, Gunbuster has other Star Trek references. Of so course, it, it, yeah. No, I mean, it fits perfectly. There's obviously, uh, as you just said, a, a history of references back and forth. Yeah, and the fact that I bumped on it is a testament to just how naturally it is placed in the text. Localization, people. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for this uh, prologue, myself, um, I'm not I'm not a Trekkie, uh, unfortunately, much to my chagrin. Um, but uh, the the thing I bumped on, I suppose, was the seeming homage to, in part, um, Yamato's kind kind of sort of setup. Though that's obviously you know less like glorious thing, but like everyone's underground and everything sucks. Um, so we all gotta gotta get along. But um, even more so than that, it was the um, uh, set up to Macross, the original SDF Macross, which is about uh, this alien ship crash lands and then um, humanity sort of unites as one, one sort of global uh, U- United Nations space organization uh, to construct, and they put all their efforts into constructing a massive ship. Um, in Macross's case, obviously, it's the SDF Macross. Um, which will be, you know, in part serve as a weapon, but also, of course, as Macross goes on, the uh, the fortresses become like colony ships, um, which is something that was explored like conceptually in fiction, um, in like uh, text resources, and at the very tail end of the show, that idea is sort of floated. Uh, so I would imagine, uh, considering um, where a lot of uh, you know those influences were going, you know, this being you know an adaptation uh, or you know uh, pulling from a uh, Gainax work, uh, it was certainly on uh, Toro's mind uh, when writing the piece because uh, there's definitely a certain amount of like uh, that in the um, oh man, what is the name of the, the ship? It's I always want to just say the Luxian, but it's not the Luxian. It's there. It is. Which ship? Is it the Luxian? It yes, is. it is the Luxian. Yes. Oh, it is uh, the, it's the Excellion. Oh my god. Because every time I see the Excellion, I think Excellion, the terrible Ixer 1 sequel mm. for some reason. Um, so it just kind of, of cuts. Yeah, just like a weird thing that supplants it in my brain. So uh, now that I've sufficiently embarrassed myself, but yeah, the Luxion kind of has the qualities of like the SDF Macross uh, in that way. But then I like how they kind of, or the Space Battleship Imato, but then kind of uh, subverts it ultimately, which I think is a fun way of playing on that. And both the show and the novels do stress this international cooperation. You have Linda from Sweden. You have Torrin Smith from Texas. You have, of course, young Freud from the Soviet Union. And the rest of the characters are Japanese. And the dub goes to extra lengths to show you the diversity of the people, the, you know, humanity cooperating. Of course, there's the irony or the contradiction of, well, really, Imperial Japan's running the show. But Gunbuster, again, isn't really concerned with that. If this were a Tomino show, there'd be more dissonance here between those contradictions. And that's not a complaint. It's just something I found interesting in the world building. Not to bring up Tomino every episode, but I'm balancing Turnate Gundam as I'm working on Gunbuster stuff, so it's always on my mind. Now, speaking as of Star Trek... Oh, yeah, of Turnate Gundam should always be on your mind. <laughs> Idiot, are you a fan of Turnate Gundam? I love it. Yeah, definitely awesome. one of my top 
favorite Gundam series. We'll have to bring you on the Moonrace Wireless. Uh, I don't I, I don't have anything smart to say about it. I just I just love it. <laughs> now we'll drag you on, kicking and screaming. <laughs> Commission you to translate some material related to it so then you can come down and talk about there that. There you go. I'm sure the, uh, the, I think I mean Fees has that area uh, like yeah. covered. I don't I don't want to step on any t- They've got it. <laughs> they don't need me. <laughs> I need to find someone who hates Turn A Gundam again on the podcast because it's usually every, like in everyone's like top five shows. There's got to be someone who's lukewarm at least on it. I'll put a call out on Twitter. Now, speaking of Star Trek, um, we got some more exposition in the beginning of the short story, and this is also in the OVA. We learn that Ota is part of the Luxion's five-year-long scientific voyage into the galaxy. So this is before humanity is aware of the space monsters. They have a ship that can travel to the far reaches of the solar system and beyond. They decide to explore the galaxy, explore the universe. We've talked about how in Gunbuster everything is a reference, and this is no different. This is clearly a nod to the Enterprise's mission to seek out new life and strange new worlds in Star Trek. Uh, Clearly the Gynax boys were Trekkies. The Enterprise, for example, shows up in Daikon 3, So I think that reference is pretty intentional. It didn't really dawn on me until this short story that, yes, the five-year mission, that's a Star Trek reference. And in the the Sizzler Project short, you also see that the Sizzler's ID code is NCC-1701. Oh, good call. This bit here about... Like this narrative conceit of exploring the galaxy, I think that's really rich material for a mecha show to mine, be it a Gynax, well, Gynax isn't really around anymore, but be it a Gynax show or a Gundam show. Like this is a direction I've always thought late UC Gundam should pivot to after, you know, decades in the Earthnoid, Spacenoid trenches. I think Crossbone kind of touches on this. I know it deals with pirates, but you're out by Jupiter. I'm sure there's an aspect of exploration in that. But I think it would be really fun to explore the far-flung reaches of the solar system in the Universal Century. Because I think it's rife material for some interesting storytelling. Like, before I mentioned the contradictions between empire building and international cooperation, here you have the contradictions between scientific exploration and colonial ambition, which is something that some Star Trek shows like Deep Space Nine explore. But I I think it's really fertile ground for a show like Gundam to explore. Yeah, I think um, my my concern with that, I suppose, uh, and and that's, you know, concern, open quotes, is that I think a lot of Macross sequels scratch that itch for people, that kind Mm. of like galaxy spanning kind of thing but but yeah with the i don't know mildly harder edge uh but to kind of say the least of a, a gundam production um with that more of a sci- more uh pointed sci-fi spin uh that would uh, be really compelling but yeah that's uh that's always again in part what i think of is like macross sequel series when this sort of thing comes up but obviously star trek is clearly what they're they're pulling on more directly um rather than what would have at this point been fairly peripheral like ancillary like novels and short stories and that sort of thing uh, themselves, uh, rather than stuff like Macross 7 that would really firmly cement that as the, the future place that Macross sequels are going. Yeah, assuming those Blu-rays aren't vaporware, I hope to watch more Macross in the future. It's good. Macross is good. Hot take. <laughs> Maybe I'll even watch some Robotech, because I know Ethan's on the call. Uh, Robotech 2 The Sentinels also clearly pulls from Star Trek, because uh, <laughs> they made a bunch of 
alien races, and they fight they fight bug aliens just like Starship Troopers. See, it's all it's all connected. Yeah, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but does Knights of Sidonia explore this? Is it about exploration? No, Knights of Sidonia is more about like survival and running away. Um, I believe the colony ships in Sidonia. It's been a few years since I watched that, but the colony ships were more like um, more like a last attempt to survive kind of thing, like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, it's more along those lines. There's got to be a Becca show out there that scratches this itch very specifically. I just don't know of it. Yeah, it's a bit. It's Macross 7, partially. But, uh, oh, yeah, Macross Again, yeah. Uh, that is a good question. V- Votum's kind of, you go to other planets, but you, but usually it's, like, I don't know, under that, that uh, military SF kind of veneer. Uh, there's not a whole lot of planet hopping uh, per episode. Uh, that you get star blazers you get a little bit of that in or okay. well space battleship yamato the original uh yamato in particular um but but whether or not that's a mecha show your mile may vary your mileage may vary they have robots and they have uh planes that are manned uh so i don't know it, it was in a super robot wars game i think that counts uh, that's the rubber stamp it's official yeah. I'm glad you brought up Macross 7 because it is that time of year. It's almost fall, so we should really get on the <laughs> eating the leaf gif posting yeah. train. It's such a good image. He's so stupid. I mean, it complimentary. Stu- stupid parentheticals compliment uh, for, for Boss or Aneki. That and PMC, what's the Ava one? It's uh, Shinji's mom. The flashback. Oh yeah, the leaf one. That's it's almost that time of year too, Stephen. I get to I get to post that every year. I get to post that, and um, and inevitably someone goes like, "Well, that's not that's that's not what they say in the in the show." Like like they don't understand that it's a meme. Like they just think it's like like a like a bad localization or something. It's, it's like what if I honestly I think people's expectations have been spoiled by those like anime aesthetic accounts <laughs> that are like they're like no they didn't she didn't actually say that she wants to stuff her ass full of leaves come on guys it's, it's just a it's not authentic to the actual material it's fake subtitles it's a gag come on get out of here nobody thinks that she's actually stuffing her ass full of leaves <laughs> Idion must think that we have all left our bodies and are so divorced from reality do you know the meme we're talking about i did once ethan said that i was like oh that gotcha. meme. yeah i remember that <laughs> yeah. meme now we didn't make up that meme but we're stealing it from some anonymous <laughs> user online it's yeah i mean it's so old like and also the, yeah, like, the thing too domain. is that like you know my like part of the reason part of the reason i bring it up is because like my my spouse loves autumn stuff so much so i'm just like as soon as she starts getting excited for pumpkin things, I'm like, well, here you go. I'm just going to post this again. Yeah. It must be today because PMC, it's feeling like fall out there. Yeah. No, no. She <laughs> <laughs> she sent me like a, like a screen cap of something. It was like, uh, it was, oh yeah. It was like Wegmans brand pumpkin pie ice cream sandwiches. And she said she was being targeted. I'm like, yep, I guess you are. <laughs> So to transition from Wegmans to Gunbuster, um, I will say, so I guess the emotional backbone of this story, short though it may be, is between Ota and Admiral Takia, Noriko's dad. 
I really like the expanded relationship between the two of them here. I'm sure their relationship is both influenced and inspired by Japanese military tradition and cultural mores, which I can't speak to. Not to sound too much like an Anglo-American, but that is my background. Their pairing reminds me a lot of the Batman officer dynamic in the British Army. Starting during World War I, all commissioned officers were given a personal servant, a Batman, no relation to Bruce Wayne, um, who, at least as portrayed in popular media, were fiercely loyal to their officers. This inspired Tolkien when it came to writing the Frodo-Sam coupling. So just think about Sam's loyalty to Frodo, and here we have Ota's loyalty to Takuya. You could draw some similarities there. I think it's sweet, and I it adds a it makes me sympathize a bit more with Ota. Um, I lost some of that sympathy in the next short story, but here I was right there for it. Yeah, I definitely think I'm right there with you, Stephen, in that like these interactions in particular, the the interactions that Oda has with like with his peers are m- much less compelling here, but the interaction with Takaya cuz it's you know, it feels like he, you know, he he gets some of what he's learning about with um you know w- w- what he wants to express for others from from Takaya and Takaya's concerned for the future in particular like how Takaya manages some of the, you know, interpersonal squabbles the fight everyone's constantly just fighting over women in this in this story and takai's management of that is far more compelling than any of the actual conflicts themselves um like so like thank goodness for that because like nothing no, i nothing we read did much to improve my opinion of coach <laughs> yeah other otherwise he's kind of um in this story, just a little bland, I would say. Um, like, like inoffensive, ultimately, um, I suppose. Uh, he's, he's not literally fighting over women. Uh, he'll, he'll help, he'll fight by proxy. Um, but um, the, the thing that did kind of strike me about the story is kind of how it parallels uh, Noriko's story, particularly Noriko's story in episode three, um, uh, the, the failure uh, to be able to fight uh, in this instance, obviously it's it's Coach being uh, denied that ability because um, Coach later on he wouldn't take that like he wouldn't make someone suffer through that same thing like like in the direct way um, that's happening here uh, where it's just sort of ripped from his hands. But um, there is very much a similar thing where he's he's unable to help others and he doesn't know how he's going to face them and you know his. Uh, joining the crew, a uh, bit of his relationship with with Kim kind of informs his own uh, bad coaching style. <laughs> uh, uh, his his squadron leader, yeah. Or uh, in particular, um, I guess that we'll we'll talk about the the big funny bit of this uh, is the the parallel between the bathhouse scene in episode two uh, and uh, the bathhouse scene here um, with Admiral Takia. Um, which gives us great, I don't know, like like old man Yowie lovers uh, are gonna gonna love this one because it's got a great shot of uh, uh, Coach Ota very serenely washing Admiral Takaya's back, um, and he's he, like the way it describes him, uh, his like feelings as he <laughs> scrubs Admiral Takaya's back um, are, uh, I don't know, he's he's racked with emotion. <laughs> No, the, the, the thing that really got me was the was the dot dot dot. What a broad back! He's really just like dad. <laughs> <laughs> like, whew, all right. Is it just is it just warm in here? Or is it me? 
Is it the bath? Oh, um, <laughs> no, it's a good. Uh, it's a striking I, illustration too. That jumped out to me first before I started reading. When I just you know thumb through the PDF, so to speak, I re- that I settled on that image for a bit. Yeah, no, I think uh, it it really does balance out the uh, the fan service element of that. Uh, <laughs> um. Uh, particular scene in episode two is is getting getting some time with the boys. <laughs> um, I I never thought we would get this with Admiral Takia though. I think that's part of what makes it so funny. Yeah, is that he's just sort of this mythologized figure, and then one of the, the few times they they you know there's only a handful of illustrations in this entire thing, and they make sure to show us uh, shirtless <laughs> Admiral Takia. Um, very funny, not quite up to to Pepsi Young uh, sort of levels, but it's it's a powerful image. PMC, as a quick aside, I saw you streaming the Gunbuster PS2 game last night. It was the bathhouse scene. Any wild swings? I only watched part of it. Like, did it get, did it get super weird? Uh, not, not really. I mean, it the the adventure it pretty game. Tame. Portion, they all had towels on. Yeah, the adventure game portions of the PS2 game, I would say, in terms of like, uh, you know, visual sexual content, have been very tame. Uh, I've not necessarily been. Like yeah, I, I'll explain this probably in our simulator episode. But I had like a machine translation rig set up, and uh, I've not necessarily been translating everything. Uh, there, you can like examine things like around like the locker room and whatnot, and get some kind of silly comments. But obviously, it probably doesn't capture the full nuance with using only a machine translation. That's that is awesome how you rig that together. Yeah, it worked better than I thought it would. Uh, I definitely had a few few people stopping by, and hopefully I'll get back to that. Obviously, my my future streams will be Armored Core Six, but depending on when we record uh, that simulator episode, I, I may yet stream some more of that. Awesome. All right, so there's there's one super funny bit in the short story. That I'm just going to read. I'm going to read Idion's translated text here because I think it's quite good. So they're in the bath, as Ethan mentioned. As they cooled down their flushed bodies in the changing room, Takio spoke. Do you mean to tell me you two don't know? He took out a few coins and walked towards the vending machine. This. When you get done with the bath, it has to be this. He held out a bottle of fruit-flavored milk. When you get out of the bath, this is a requirement. Not coffee milk, not strawberry milk. It has to be this. Drinking this will even stave off space radiation sickness. Admiral, are you serious? Ota and Shimada were shocked. It even worked for radiation sickness? Their awestruck gazes were fixated on the outstretched bottle of fruit milk. Of course not. Laughing, Takiya chugged the bottle. Ota and Shimada looked at each other and burst out laughing as they pulled the cap off a bottle of fruit. Um, I need more prankster Takia, please and thank you. This is basically the Tales of Symphonia hot coffee meme. PMC, for the listeners who don't know, what is that meme? Okay, so there is a scene, uh, spoilers for Tales of Symphonia. There is a scene in Tales of Symphonia involving the primary character, Lloyd, and the other character, the girl. I forget the name of the girl. The girl has a problem. What's her name? Colette. Colette. Colette has a problem. She is slowly turning into an angel, I think. And as a result of that, she is like losing bodily functions. Uh, And one of those things, of course, is temperature sensitivity. And so Lloyd Irving, 
one of the smartest JRPG protagonists of all time, hands her a thing of coffee and is like, like lies repeatedly about whether or not it's hot or iced coffee. And when it becomes apparent that, <laughs> you know, Colette can't actually tell whether it's hot coffee or iced coffee. He's like, yeah, like I lied because you're not being honest about, you know, what's happening to you. Uh, but it's it's like incredibly funny delivery. It 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 really is actually, a, and someone made like a really funny um like meme Im, meme edit of it, uh where it's just like the it's like almost like a Conan O'Brien level face that Lloyd has, yes. uh where he's like yeah actually I lied it's it's iced coffee. I know people that face oh, go is on. based off his uh, the face is his wanted poster the wanted poster too game. right yeah there's a yeah. very funny bit yeah. with a wanted poster earlier in the game. I'm, I I workshop this meme um, with Lloyd saying, drink fruit-flavored milk. It will stave off space radiation sickness. I lied, actually, it won't. I'm just trying to workshop like a good caption for it because it's the deepest cut. Like This is a reference to Admiral Takia in the 1989 short story Top Gun Buster. So I need, <laughs> I need to make inroads to understa- uh, get people to understand this. I mean, the fun- I, I'm trying to think of an instance in which someone wrote a prequel work of fiction in which a character is uh is pranked about a a solution for their eventual cause of death <laughs> it's bleak it's really funny like i'm just trying to think like you know what <laughs> what you know like oops uh it would be like if there was like an like a a, a darth vader and palpatine story where like they talked about safety around uh, steep drops in like industrial military facilities, right? Like, oh, you got to have fencing there. It's like you can't fall down; it'll really hurt. Like, you don't want to do that. You know, you should always, um, you know, carry uh, something that would make you float. But like, no, it doesn't make you float. I don't know. <laughs> Not to sound like uh, a stereotypical weed but when i went to japan i did stumble upon a lot of fruit flavored milk it's very po- it seems to be very popular particularly like banana and strawberry flavors i didn't have any though i've had of course i have chocolate milk that's not a fruit but i've had strawberry milk before it's all right all right all right pmc is uh indirectly gesturing me to move on i'm just just sighing exasperated at this you know these these culinary takes but i mean it's good thing our audience comes for the thoughts about giant robots and not for for culinary takes yeah bean paste and milk chocolate mm-hmm. all right those were all my those are all my notes on top gun buster anyone else have anything to add i really to be fair i like this short story a lot uh, I, as has been mentioned, Ota is, uh, in, in this one, mostly just serviceable as a perspective character. Um, it gives us a lot of good insight. I think it is it is kind of fun to kind of bear witness to a doomed voyage, uh, and you're aware that things are going to fall to pieces uh, as they go, go along, uh, and just seeing kind of uh, everything fail um, is, is one of those things where uh, it, it's done in Gunbuster proper in the animation uh, to, a, to a slightly lesser extent, maybe. Um, and then it makes uh, the eventual appearance of Gunbuster all the more satisfying. Um, so I think in, in that way, it kind of, again, you know, furthers our understanding of what makes the space monsters so terrible, um, while also kind of giving us a richer pic- uh, image of um, Admiral Takia uh, far more than, uh, I think, Coach Ota. 
even though we do get a bit more perspective on uh, him and why he would be, you know, trying so hard, um, like because he feels like he failed on multiple levels, um, we see we see him uh, kind of uh, beef it uh, on several different uh, instances. Um, but yeah, there's just the depictions of violence too are kind of uh, weird. Like you, uh, I believe it describes a character being like split in twain, uh, sort of like like legless um, after. Uh, they were blown in half by the the laser that carves through the bridge and that sort of thing, um, which is uh, very satisfying. That's I that's the kind of thing I kind of like in this particular sort of military SF. Again, the Forever War, and I believe you see a t- very tiny bit of that in Starship Troopers, despite it being you know work from the fifties uh, and also bad. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think that just kind of grounds it uh, and gives us this. A distinct flavor is so, again kind of separate from gunbuster there's no real inkling of what will come with you know a super robot on this it's just kind of everything's bad and terrible yeah the uh, the glimpse of i want to say it's at the end of this one too the glimpse of noriko we get um morning uh is very sweet uh, it's nice to see a little bit of noriko uh and i think she's she's far better handled uh than cosme as we're about to get into I definitely think talking about the depictions of violence in that kind of like era of fiction is a is a good thing to bring up. I because I, I didn't even I I, I didn't even bat an eye on it because I'm currently still deep in a in a run of, of BattleTech novels and like just today I had, I had read a passage where uh you know someone like a, some guys in an armored suit like group show you know run into a command post and just you know claw a bunch of people in half and it's like oh okay yeah this is this is what I, this is the genre of fiction that I'm reading. So if we're maybe to put one last to close up um, Top Gun Buster, I do have again thanks to Next Generation Easter. I have a little bit from the author about what it was like to uh, to receive the request to do the story. I listened to Mister Okada lecture for about three hours on the relationship between the Luxion fleet and the space monsters, and his instructions to me were mix a lot of small details into it, like Stephen King. I didn't do so well with those small details because of the number of pages I had. Hang on, was I actually given a specific page limit? It was a very laid-back time. Like Stephen King. It sounds like Okada, yeah. Yeah. That comports with everything I've I've read and heard. I will say, as a prequel, this story doesn't fall prey to a lot of prequelitis which i think the spirits of gunbuster does these characters even though it's referencing things that happen in the ova doesn't really feel forced these characters are allowed to exist at this moment before tragedy befalls them um it's not there's not a lot of callbacks there it's just the characters are allowed to be which i think is cool although both both this story and the next give their own reasons for ota's fascination with shogi True. I was gonna say the only the only real moment of this that was like I kind of rolled my eyes at was in fact uh, Coach losing his eye. I was like, oh yeah, I guess we got to do this bit. Yeah, fine, fine. Yeah, yeah. I think the the one thing I do think that kind of helps that go down too is that it's one of the um because there are a handful of images here. The image is very striking. It is yeah. of him him losing his eye. It's, it very much kind of reminds me of like Harlock and Arcadia of my youth. Again, you know, making the connected connection to Matsumoto fiction. Um, I, it also just kind of occurred to me, this is probably not intentional, but there's a, a certain flavor of, um, if you've ever seen the anime Genesis Climber Mospita, um, it opens on, on this 
situation basically uh, of like like the triumphant fleet uh, getting absolutely demolished and the sole survivor um, fleeing uh, as all of his friends are dead uh, and his, his mentor figure perishes horribly um, and the aliens are also insectoid and it has a bit more of like a call- it kind of refers back to at times some like more military SF kind of uh, traditions, albeit obviously for uh, 1983 television animation sensibilities. Um, I, I do wonder if they were uh, at all uh, inspired by that, or if it's just a case of probably you know parallel influences. There's a lot of Clark and um, a little bit of Hogan influence in like Mospita, clearly because like I think they reference Inherit the Stars directly. Good pull. I'm nodding because I'm not as familiar with military hard sci-fi like you are, Ethan, but I appreciate the the observation nonetheless. All right, let's talk about short story number two, Aim for the Top, The Spirits of Gunbuster, published in 2002. Aim for the Top, The Spirits of Gunbuster, which from here on out I'll refer to as Spirits of Gunbuster, or maybe even Spirits, another OTA-centered story, was published a whole 13 years later. Gainax was still around, Obviously, the meteoric success of Evangelion jettisoned the studio to superstardom in the mid-90s, but a lot had changed. Despite the imploding OVA market, Gainax, no doubt banking on name recognition and their fervent fandom, was still finding success in the direct-to-video market. Fooly Cooly came out in 2000, which would be followed by Die Buster a few years later. Idian, what was the occasion for Spirits of Gunbuster, or was there one? So as far as I can tell, um, this issue of, um, which I have right here, of SF Japan was really just a special issue that was focused on Gainax and that sort of first generation of creators that grew up watching anime and reading science fiction. Um, It's a couple years too early for Gainax's 20th anniversary, which was also when they first announced Die Buster. But the early 2000s were a busy time for the studio, and from what I've sort of understood, not being a, a real Gainax historian, but just seeing this in other magazines that I have accumulated from that time period, it was kind of a resurgence for, for them. Um, you had Fuli Kuli, you had Mahoromatic, and you had Magical Shopping Arcade Abenobashi coming out really just one after the other. And so this this issue of SF Japan that Spirits is, um, comes from, it also features interviews with a lot of prominent Gainax members, as well as short stories based on Oneamis and uh, Abenobashi. And of particular note is the Oneamis story, which is really, as far I haven't really looked too much at it, but it's about the mythology of that world. And it's written by science fiction author um, Hiroe Suga, who is also the wife of Gainax founding member and general manager Yasuhiro Takeda. AKA uh, No Tenki from the um, the Daikon film, and he wrote you know he wrote the No Tenki memoirs. Very cool connection. Yeah, Gainax, of course, is really exploding around this time, the early two thousands. It reminds me of in Fully Cooly, the dad, Nauto's dad, who's really ob- obsessed with Ava, and he's writing a book on Ava lore which I think speaks to the popularity of Ava writ large, and also the fact that Gainax by this point was a household name. I know people toss that phrase and label around a lot, but I think for Gainax it is true. 
Now, I'm unfamiliar with Mikomo, Mikumo Gakuto, the writer, and Ito Shimpei, the illustrator. Idion, what else have they done? What's their history? Uh, so, Mikomo is a light novelist and short story author. He's um, he's written a lot of light novel series, um, Asura Kryon, Strike the Blood, and the Mystic Archives of Dantalion have all received anime adaptations, which I don't know that... That seems to me like how you measure the success of a light novel, light novel author, which is maybe incorrect, but um, Gainax also animated the uh, Mystic Archives of Dantalion. Uh, he wrote Metal Gear Portable Ops, which is a plus in my book, and he has a co-writing credit oh. on the story for Metal Gear Survive. So, boo. Um, he's He seemed really famous. I Because of that, <laughs> I wasn't really interested in doing any real research on him because I don't know if that shows you where my focus tends to go, but I was like, there's enough about this guy. I don't, I don't need to look him up. Um, Ito is a manga artist who seems to specialize in drawing women in bodysuits. Um, he's both known for Moldiver and Hyperdoll, both of which got anime OVAs in the 90s, and both of which were released in the US. I don't know anything about either one, but I did recognize Hyperdoll because um, Eno, the author from last time, wrote a novelization of it. Uh, Ito also did Cutie Honey A Go Go, which was based on the setting of Anno's 2004 movie version. Also got an English. Um, official English translation by uh, Seven Seas, and he did the manga adaptation of Taisho Baseball Girls, which is the only thing I've listed so far that I can claim to have seen. Um, earlier in his career, he also did the illustrations for several game books based on video games, including multiple Dragon Quests and The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. Ah, oh, very cool. I gotta check out Portable Ops. I hear good things about that game. I like, I like Portable Ops. <laughs> People sleep in portable ops. I think it, it holds up. I got to be the real Metal Gear hipster one of these days and just play the two acid games. That's correct. And survive. I know Konami's in the process of really fucking up the HD collection, but give me an HD collection of portable ops and the two acid games. You have to somehow come up with a way to replicate the 3D viewer for acid too. You unfold, you know, basically put a box over your PSP and it makes the screen 3D. <laughs> All right, PMC, hit me with a summary of Spirits of Gunbuster. Oh, All right, this is this, basic- this short story is a little longer. I would say Top Gunbuster is what, around 50 pages? This is probably closer to 70. Yeah. And you could correct me if oh, I'm yeah, wrong. Oh, yeah, it's much longer. And to the point where I. This one sort of. So. I did Top Gunbuster after I finished uh, uh, the first novelization of Gunbuster. It just sort of worked out. as like, I can do a novel, a short story, a novel, a short story. And so my plan was to basically have it be able to just, you know, put it right out right away. And then I realized how long this story is. I was like, oh, this is going to, hmm. And so that sort of stalled, I sort of stalled out on this one a bit because it just seemed to be so much longer. And I was, I don't know. But, um, and yes, it is at least twice as long. 
Yeah, so this this story is what I would sort of call like if you were um if you were seeking it's kind of funny because at one point in the story, Coach is a defendant in court. And I think that's a great place for him, the defendant's seat in the courtroom, because uh this short story is full of his crimes, which is pretty interesting. Uh, <laughs> so what is the story about? The story kind of I would say is um much more so than Top Gunbuster, Spirits of Gunbuster is concerned with coach between the Luxion and the start of the OVA. Uh, it emphasizes several things. It emphasizes the fallout and the reaction to the destruction of the Luxion fleet, in particular why it is that Admiral Takaya is a reviled figure. Uh, it kind of clear, it fills in some of that information. Uh, and it also sheds light on how it is that coach came to be involved in the design and manufacture of the the gunbuster the titular gunbuster uh his relationships with Kazumi Amano's parents that he both knew and uh and then also a sort of um initial test run of the gunbuster that he pilots with with like a a baby Kazumi so yeah that's uh, I would say that that covers the uh, the gamut there. What's the f- very funny G witch meme? Like, oh, it's my umfi. Oh yeah, she's space killing umfi. people. Hi, space umfi. What do you? Do? Oh my god, space umfi is killing people. <laughs> PMC, that was a very good summary of the short story. Yeah. No, really, I <laughs> I could so like. I don't know, Stephen. You probably have a more um, uh, a better way of sort of describing this kind of trope. I, I feel like there is a trope. This is one of those things where I think there's a trope, but I don't know for sure, or a, a sort of um, a, a, a common literary element in which a uh, a budding romance that never comes to fruition is transposed or passed onto a younger generation. Uh, the foremost example of this in my brain is Final Fantasy VIII, of course, naturally. Uh, but here, because of the time, uh, dil- uh, I said dilution, dilation, <laughs> we have a different sort of thing that happens, which is that uh, only one of the pairs has that transposed onto the next generation because the other person is undergoing time dilation, uh, which ooh, feels real bad. <laughs> to to us the reader i don't know about y'all gunbuster like- time delusion would be a good name for a short story <laughs> ethan i didn't mean to cut you off there no 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 that is that is completely correct um that yeah it would be like yeah gunbuster time time a stranger uh come back and see you know uh, noriko and i well cosme i guess already is in her mid 30s at the by the end of the mm-hmm. show so. wow, yeah um or just turn into yeah, the name the- of a tenchi episode no time for time dilation mm-hmm. No time for dilation. Hmm. Hmm. No, thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that one back. Um. No. The the main thing that I was thinking of here uh, was um the what happens where he comes back uh, after after telling Cosme he's going to marry her. He he does the thing that was a bit in the novels. The the girl who was going to use time dilation to groom that boy. <laughs> like like. Oh yeah. Uh, he kind of does uh, do the bit. <laughs> Uh, he, he does the bit but for real he, he's like oh no but it's like by accident instead it's like wait no I wasn't actually planning on doing this uh, that that just really struck me uh, in the moment um, 
just an extra wrinkle on why this this whole affair is not great. Yeah, a real wrinkle in time dilation. Yeah. I did I did the the, yeah. the finger guns there just audience. Just pretend I had a soundboard and a, you know to do the 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 hack the hack crash. All right, let's start at the beginning because I do have some notes here. Not as many as the previous short story. Um but yeah, let's start where the story starts. Um PMC mentioned the courtroom scene. I don't think this was intentional. Like there are a bunch of gunbuster short stories as Idian alluded to earlier, but Spirits bookends Top Gunbuster really well. Idian, was that the reason why you chose to translate this one? Because the two do make a nice pair. Uh no, not, um those those are kind of the reason is because all the other short stories are comics and I don't okay. I don't enjoy doing photo editing, <laughs> which I learned doing the um the comic for for the barrel it's like i don't really enjoy this so i'm not going to but um no when you talk about actual like gunbuster fiction it, it was because there's a short list and i was determined to do all of it gotcha so maybe it could have been more directly connected than we think or at least that i think but it picks up right where that our top gun buster leaves off so you have ota one of the few dozen survivors of the lucian tragedy he watches back on Earth as the military pins the blame of this disaster on Admiral Takia. At the beginning of the story, Ota is on trial for suspected malfeasance slash treason, no doubt implicated because of his proximity to Takia and the fact that he lived. So, as PMC alluded to, uh, I'm not too hot on where this story goes. It, I think it would have been rad if this court scene was extended and became a frame narrative for the short story. Like, maybe set it further in the future and have it bounce around different moments of Oda's life and then back to the trial. I thought that would be really cool. Kind of like, I haven't seen it yet, but I think the third act in Oppenheimer kind of does this. Not bounces around, but jump into the future. He's on trial. I think there could be some some juicy bits there. Like the, uh, I can't believe I'm doing this, the Persona 5 framing device. Yeah, PMC's favorite game, Persona yeah, 5. God damn it. Yeah, I mean, he does get a, civ- a civilian uh, at worst. I don't I don't know if it's explicitly stated in the text, but, like, horribly injured um, or a seeming civilian. Uh, is she a part of anything, actually? She's, she's like a science does, does it, officer. She, yeah, she, she's from an aerospace she's, corporation, which one of the things that this story, I think, is pretty good at understanding the assignment about is its references to other things. So she works for Incom, which you might know as the people that make the X-Wing. <laughs> oh. I can't believe I didn't know that. I'm such a Star Wars sicko. But I I, I mean, I, I'm sort of understanding that they're, they are the people that are manufacturing Gunbuster on, yeah, you know, yeah. on contract from the, the military. No, no, that makes sense then, because that's, yeah, that's sort of a gray space at that point, I guess. You probably wouldn't get in trouble for it. Or at the very least, you know, it would be like a, you know, mock, like a trial for appearances sake. Um, but yeah, having having something to kind of fr- frame the narrative might help because it, it starts off okay. Uh, and I think that's the thing is it just kind of loses itself as it goes along, like the beat, the way everything, it, it loses its, uh, that sense of neat pace uh and it feels more and more as it goes along like um the author's kind of 
being crushed under the weight of, well, I need to make references to the original text to uh, be on, you know, obviously references to external texts like Star's War. Uh, but, um, and I, I think that comes to sort of the detriment. It's like, well, I need to make references to this thing and also have it be like a rewarding scene. And I have to have the robot show up. But obviously it's a Gunbuster short story. People were paid to see the Gunbuster. Um, <laughs> I, I think it, that that's its biggest issue uh, is the uh, the first piece. It's just like sort of recreating a scene. There's it doesn't feel there's no mecha action in that one. It's just like like you don't even really get dog fighting uh, in it. It's just you know a traditional piece of uh, science fiction basically. Uh, this far more feels like Gunbuster tie-in fiction. Uh, mm. Like all 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 words capitalized there, um, and I think that's where it kind of stumbles uh, when it feels that, especially the insistence to include Kazumi, I think. Um, like, I don't know. Having her parents be there is one thing. Um, that's, uh, I don't know. I could take it or leave it. It it kind of sort of makes it feel like, like the and aim for the ace reference in uh, that um, uh, Ota, or the, um, uh, the coach in uh, aim for the ace uh, has a relationship with uh, Reika, the Kazumi equivalent. Uh, father, uh, because uh, her father is the head of the like uh, a major player in the ten- Japanese tennis league. Um, like as on an official level, not a literal player. <laughs> I realize uh, in that, this instance, <laughs> you kind of have to make a distinguishing comment. But obviously, there's far less you know relationship stuff. Uh, the, co- the coach is not dating uh, Reika's, or there was never any like romantic interest with Reika's mom in. Uh, aim for the ace mostly because her father looks like he's like 60 or something in that text but yeah i think uh as a whole uh it kind of unfurls as it goes along uh just kind of taking a bird's eye view uh to the piece i'm sure there's there's more specific things we can poke at i think this is the one that uh invites more conversation about it uh to say the least than the last one yeah actually when you mentioned that ethan i was thinking it really does speak to how much time has passed since Gunbuster came out. The last episodes came out in 1989. This story came out in 2002. Usually when prequels are at their most egregious, a lot of time has passed. And usually I feel the writer of said prequel feels they have to make a lot of explicit references to the source text as opposed to being very imaginative with the material which is i think what this story suffers from we've covered a few prequels on giant robot fm pmc correct me if i'm wrong it's really just the origin and doan right doan's kind of a reimagining but it straddles that line yeah i mean doan doan you know deserves to be included with the origin just because of how it moves details around it is it is effectively a prequel work yeah, and of course I'm a fan of stuff, which means I've seen a whole lot of shitty prequels. Most of them suffer from this problem. They're too insular and self-referential. The Star Wars problem, yes. You could cite the prequels. I would cite Obi-Wan, the TV show, as being particularly bad with this sort of stuff. As Ethan mentioned, Kazumi's parents, the Aminos, are basically the two other major characters in Spirits of Gunbuster. Ota and Hiroyuki. Hiroyuki is the dad. He's a commander in the Imperial Space Force. They go way back. Tsukiko, uh, the wife, 
Doctor of Aerophysics. Um, the two of them were old flames. I, I know this is trite to say, but it, it does make the world of Gunbuster, which is all about breaking boundaries, seem so small. Like, these two people could have been anyone. It's just so unimaginative. And also, given Ota and Kazumi's coupling, the fact that Ota was hot for her mom rubs me the wrong way. Though, I guess, in defense of that decision, it is a very gendo thing to do if you've seen evangelion you know what i'm talking about her sunglasses are the uh hans dice of this story (laughs) speaking of references being too overt and too obvious the sunglasses beat was like oh yeah it was right up there with uh shar's mask i guess right and now that gets handled in the origin (laughs) yeah i i have one i have a good thing to say about Sukiko though Kazumi's mom um it's a when you're writing a prequel it's a tough line to walk but you have to make some references to the original text what references are too overt or too obnoxious and what references are subtle enough to not upset anyone that's very those are very subjective decisions here in this story, Kazumi's mom really invests herself in the Gunbuster project so that her daughter can have a future. It's a predictable plot twist, but or plot point, but I think the symmetry is appropriate. And it, for me, it didn't come off as too obnoxious. We talked about this when we talked about the OVA. Kimiko is willing to sacrifice her life so her daughter can live, and Noriko and Kazumi are doing the same thing. They're willing to die so that humanity has a future. The fact that Tsukiko acts the same way, that's good symmetry in my book. I, I, I dug that. Yeah, the state of motivation is is good for sure. I think that definitely, it definitely makes it fit instead of, you know, the, the sort of sensation that, because Coach definitely just seems to be like stumbling through a pile of Gunbuster references for much of the run of this, which is what, <laughs> like what, what, what Tsukiko is like, Coach, the answer to piloting the gunbuster, it's hard work and guts. And we're like, oh yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. Gunbuster mad libs at that point. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like right. I'm calling on the student who has who has like a passing knowledge of gunbuster, and they're like, Yeah, you mean hard work and guts, right? As yeah. if that's the one talking point of gunbuster they know. Future future look at, at Steven teaching gunbuster in his in his classroom. Uh that'll be my last year teaching PMC. <laughs> Gunbuster unedited to my students. <laughs> there's, there's nothing too lascivious if you just uh, had them. I guess. Yeah, Why just walk into the classroom with two Pepsi bottles and just <laughs> slap them on the table? Kids, you know what these are for? What, what purpose would they have? Stephen Hero was carrying two Gunbuster novels <laughs> without lascivious intent or to clean out anywhere weird. Yeah, then you'll um, then you'll see my mug shot on CNN. No, no. Uh, no, um, speaking of references, I don't, I don't know how intentional this was. I do like how the, um, uh, space monster, this one has fewer illustrations, mm. which makes me upset because I like the pretty pictures. Um, but, uh, the, uh, the way the space monster is rendered, uh, more, well, A, it's, it's kind of cute. Uh, the, um, the Mew, um, and it, it reminds me more of an Olmu, yeah. uh, from, uh, Naushika. Which is, a, you know, probably intentional. There's a, there's a tiny, tiny bit of that, uh, like in the original, I think, um, with the infantry units. 
Uh, but this one, it seems, uh, it's you know, it's more segmented and seems far more intentionally evoking uh, that sort of thing. Um, also, I like the like balding officer in the bottom left-hand uh, corner of that same image. Uh, I think he's very amusing for some reason. He looks like Jason Alexander just a little bit. That's who I want in my live-action gunbuster, George Costanza. I don't say that sarcastically either. All right, we have to get to the talking point. We have to talk about the bit. Just like if we're doing a Royal Space Force episode, you have to talk about the scene. We have to talk about this. I think I think all our biggest issues with this story is the Ota and Kazumi stuff. Um, the fact that they knew each other since Kazumi was a girl and she wanted to marry him. Um, it's like, I think grooming might be too strong. It's not not grooming, I'll say that. Um, but given where the story goes, I think it's pretty yucky. There's a line, I was like, oh dear, what am I in for? Quote, the last time we met was on my ninth birthday. I wasn't a child, uncle. And then having seen my fair share of anime and played my fair share of Japanese video games, be they dating sims or JRPGs, I was like, oop, my alarm bells were ringing at that point. And it really does stick out because I feel like the story, as Ethan says, meanders a bit and there's nothing really to distract me from this bit. So yeah, rub me the wrong way. Yeah, especially the comparisons, you know, with with Tsukiko and Kazumi, I think are are like, because I feel like it's almost trying to like, um, again, to like transitively impart the maturity of Tsukiko on to Kazumi. But that that ain't how it works chief even as kind of like this sort of taboo love story um i i think what would make it like even if it was you know intentionally like uh, you you can do something kind of provocative or like that in the realm of fiction the problem is that we get no zero interiority from Cosme. yeah uh, she she feels very much like a prop in this piece um and I feel like just having a bit more of an inkling on, like, uh, a bit more of a read in general on her feelings, uh, like, for the, for the whole situation, uh, she's just kind of a trooper <laughs> throughout this entire experience. Her, her mom nearly dies. Uh, her father just straight up dies. Um, and we don't really get anything from her. Like, the, like she's described as being in a scene, uh, like, standing by her mother's deathbed, and then we don't hear a peep from her. Uh, throughout the entire rest of the scene and i think that would that would make it work a, just a little bit better at the very least to understand that there, there is like a burgeoning romantic spark here or something like her own commitment towards that uh relationship um would make it i don't know it, if not more palatable than maybe more successful at being a, a possibly romantic um i i mean i think it's something that the main series kind of struggles with, but uh, this is like it at its <laughs> absolute worst, uh, pretty much. Uh, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating because I think there there is a way where you can, again, make that address uh, those concerns and make things a bit more, I don't know, uh, like even out power dynamics a little bit more because she's like, she does say like, I wasn't a girl uh, back then, but it's like, I don't know, that's a the only time she kind of seems to have the upper hand in a conversation with him. Uh, and even then, like he, she pretty much immediately loses it. Um, there's, there's no sense of, uh, 
sort of any any attempt to kind of put them on even even footing, even despite their age, because you you can do that uh, a little bit um, to make these sorts of you know age gap relationships a little bit more again palatable and make it a bit more understandable why uh, like yeah why why Cosme is interested in this man aside from him you know being so full of hard work and or guts um, and being very stoic and I don't know sort of handsome in a general sense. It does feel to me like. I mean that like yes it is kind of a genre convention but that's you know he's just the author is just sort of relying on it as a convention without trying to really do the work maybe <laughs> you, you know it's, it's just like you just like yeah you, you might see other examples of this in literature or you know shoujo manga or th- that kind of thing but it's like it, you know, yes, Kazumi is not really a person in this story. And I think... To, exactly. I was going to extend it to say that, like, Coach also... Like, his reactions to it are more along the lines of his, like, general character archetype of being stoic, of just... Or, or being so, you know, traumatized by his experiences and his cause that he's not even, like interacting with it along the lines of like no you are a child (laughs) like stop you know he's mostly just sort of like no i'm too i'm too traumatized sort of uh vibes i think yeah there's a there's a real wishy-washiness to his like his refusal to especially towards the end where he's he's you kind of see inklings of a like i shouldn't be doing this however um maybe uh, just like a tidy bit of that creeping in and it's like no 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 you haven't done the work to get here please pull pull, pull it back um, um yeah it's it's just especially frustrating here i think especially i don't know cosme's on the cover she's on the cover image she's right there we get a full body shot of her and uh she doesn't contribute that much uh i don't know i feel like she could have done like the the shogi games or something with him more directly instead of just also um sort of a you know a continuity is meaningless you know whatever but uh is it implied in the open is it implied when he's going to coach he's coaching at okie girls i want to say like because he's coaching as opposed uh, to being like a general coach at yeah at the end of the story or or uh towards the towards the be- like beginning when he's described as coaching for like uh, like a girl's school because he's uh, coaching uh cosme early on i think it might be in between gunbuster operation like attempts at combination uh i, I think that say. was a summer camp as it might have been I, I didn't reread this because <laughs> i've read it enough times but I, I i do think that was a um it was like a a temporary teaching role but i don't i don't know they never talk about koichiro being a coach like i i thought for sure that would have come up like, isn't that funny? <laughs> that's a good point, PMC. Like, that's just to me. That's like the when I saw the Indiana Jones and the and the Crystal Skull, and at no point did they say Mutt's a dog's name. I was like, why are you? Who even wrote this? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, that that's low hanging fruit. Yeah, you know. can't believe that never dawned on me. Not that I think about Indy <laughs> Four too often. It's a great point, PMC. 
Yeah, okay, okay. So it does say that he's going to Okinawa. I don't think it makes it explicit. Like, he's training pilot candidates, but it does not explicitly say that he's teaching at Okinawa Girls School, so it might have just been, like, a boot camp functionally at that point. We, we can infer that much. Sorry, I just had to scratch that itch to make sure that I wasn't completely misremembering it more than anything. Um, just because this, this one does feel like the one that has the, the Wii U a little bit more wonky continuity. Um, I know the, that sort of author author note is placed in the front where it's like, it doesn't really match up with Flash short story and also the main text, but, you know, just just go with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Translate yeah. Note, rather. My apologies. For sure. And, I mean, especially with the first... With the first story, I didn't. I never really understood the timeline, with like how time dilation was supposed to be working with that story. But oh, oh yeah, yeah. With him supposed to, with uh, Takaya supposedly coming back once a year. Yeah, that was or clearly whatever. not um, not happening. <laughs> yeah, that that's one that's a little confu- it's like just ages a confusing. It's like the ages and the timeline and how much time is supposed to be passing on Earth versus on the show. Yeah, I, I didn't. But I, I will say that strangeness. I, you know, I, the things I like about this story are, you know, sort of the techno babble and the the stuff about the, the grittier details and all, all the, there are a lot of references. I mean, it's very clear that Gunbuster, prototype Gunbuster is a take on prototype Getter Robo with the color that is described as being in the relocated Buster Beam in the belly and, but... I'm not super high on the story, except I did sort of warm up to the guy when I read his afterword, and he's just like, everyone is telling me, don't screw this up, and I'm sorry if I did, but I had fun doing it, I got to do what I wanted, <laughs> and I love Gunbuster. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, I, you can't I be can't too mad at too. him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the techno babble because my final note here is I guess it's directed more at PMC because in an earlier episode, I think it was our episode five discussion with Emily, you said, and I, was, I went back to your notes here, uh, you said, quote, it's fun that we never get a reason for why the gunbuster is effective when so much else isn't, end quote. And for better or worse, Spirits of Gunbuster does address that a bit because we get a lot of techno babble basically amounting to the Gunbuster is both fast and strong. PMC, do you have thoughts on this? Uh, so I think I think some of it is I wish I didn't have this, and then some of it I think is effective. I really like the the ideas around like this is so miserably unstable that like you have to kill everything in a half hour or it just goes poorly for you. Like that's a good bit. Like I think that's Mm -hmm. a fun sort of bit. It's one of those things where it's like, if it contributes to the tension and the action, like I'm glad you told me. And, and that's, you know, that detail that I just mentioned is one of those. Uh, but, (laughs) but sort of the other, other elements of it, I'm like, all right, fine. Like, there's a real question to, I mean, Gunbuster, you know, has the science episodes, right? It has the, you know, it, it goes through a lot of this with the ether and the degeneracy reactors and all these things. And like some of it, and I, but I think a lot of those things when they're effective, they're effective because they're being used to help prop up other things. The, the discussion of ether is useful because I think it uh, affirms all of the nautical terminology, the, the nautical terminology that Stephen is so fond of that gets to stick around because ether is often being described as having turbulence, being in waves, things like that. And so with 
this about Gunbuster, I think the the sense of urgency of the strike hard and strike fast kind of stuff, like that technobabble is useful. But but when you literally tell me that for it to work, the trick is hard work and guts, that's not really technobabble. That's just like a prequelism disease. That's a good point. I guess uh, the the other thing that jumps to mind uh, is is the discussion of of the gunbuster itself, uh, who shows up a little early in this app. Uh, we get to see some some neat features from it uh, beyond it being in a beautiful white paint job that they they maybe made a toy of. I'm unsure uh, if they would make the tie into the <laughs> gunbuster short story, but it just seemed like the kind of excuse somebody would be looking for uh, to make a fun variant. I know they made a black and white one for uh, they made a black and white model kit. Um, episode six so hey this is just just remove the black from that and you have uh this model of uh gunbuster and it's more uh directly as was mentioned uh homaging uh getter robo the the open did they say open bust yeah yeah when they separate and then recombine which is apparently much easier after you do it the first time but that's fine they've they've synchronized their their heart rates uh they've They've done the the synchronized dancing training together, uh, watched blue and orange and argued over it or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, and the uh, uh, tomahawk, which is a refer- reference, obviously, to the getter tomahawk. And even the cape. Uh, the cape is the uh, a getter robo thing. Uh, so it's a lot more directly reveling in uh, getter robo homage, uh, which, you know, Gunbuster already kind of did a lot of. <laughs> um uh, which is fun and good. Uh, it's it's fun. It's fun seeing uh, Ota get to pilot something too, because uh, we didn't even get that in the last one. Uh, well, we got a very little bit of that in the last one, I guess, but we didn't get it to see him fight space monsters at all. Um, so that's that's kind of a unique quality of this short story, I suppose, that we get to see him doing that. Um, and also, there's a real keen illustration um, where they do the the you know mech weeping uh, kind yeah. of iconography a la giant robo of course is the big one i also like it when the um head is upturned like that it always makes me think of like the um in episode 14 of Edeon when the Edeon is roaring uh, for the first time it has uh like uh that 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 is good like i think like mecha tropes like humanization of mecha tropes it's like mecha crying is like very slightly below uh mecha roaring in anguish um for me uh it's such a good bit um but that that uh, particular illustration is um, especially artful, uh, and I think uh, a good bookend that kind of helps um, salvage a little bit of the finale of this one. This this sort of fraught piece uh, that is again, I think of the two certainly the more more interesting, the more interesting to discuss, but uh, uh, maybe not as strong as a work unto itself. I agree. I think that brings us to the end of our conversation of. Spirits of Gunbuster, but also our conversation of the Gunbuster short stories. W- well done, my friends and co-hosts. Hell yeah. I look, mm-hmm. uh, the obligatory giant robot FM, hell yeah, to wrap things up. <laughs> I look forward to hopefully convening again sometime in the far future for Next Generation, and who knows, I really want to read that comic short, no pressure, Adian, but I'm curious about the comic short story with Jung and Noriko on the moon playing golf. Oh yeah. <laughs> No pressure, though. So a lot of I've, I've not heard about that. A lot of nudity in those comics. <laughs> I, I believe that. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds that's, about that right. Out. Yeah. But no, I All would right. love to um, 
I mean, yeah, there, there's a, a wealth of information in those in those two volumes because there's also a lot of, you know, contributions from people who were animators and, you know, major players and, and you know, they just have pages of, like, doodles and notes and, and those are cool books. <clears throat> Very cool. Yeah, and speaking of, of potentially cool resources, actually, it's probably worth with plugging sort of mm. at the very tail end, yeah. too, is that uh, Justin Sevakis, uh Justin Sevakis, I said his name wrong. Uh, Justin Sevakis uh, uh, has started uploading the uh, Jonathan Clements commentaries that were supposed to be included on the Blu-ray um, to his personal YouTube channel uh, now. Uh, they're now available now that you're, you've got one more Gunbuster thing to talk about. Um but this just gives you another reason to come back, baby. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I, I started listening to episode one. I'm going to maybe do an episode a week, rewatch the episode alongside the commentary. I went back to our history episode to see what I said about the missing commentaries, and I declared on air, "Yeah, these aren't ever going to be released to the public." And here I am with the proverbial egg on my face. Yeah, I guess I guess if it's not synced up to animation, they're not really, uh, and it's him, you know, doing it personally mm -hmm. on his own account. It's less uh, legal sort of restrictions. I imagine Jonathan Clements was paid for his time already. It's not like he was going to get royalties from that release, yeah, <laughs> or anything. That's not how that works. Um, but no, that's exciting. It's cool. Jonathan Clements uh, has some has some very weird takes about Hosoda films, but. Uh, is, is a wealth of knowledge, particularly about Japanese animation history uh, pre-1963. Uh, his, his book, Anime History, is very useful for that. Uh, the, the rest of it is, is solid. The, the stuff before 1963, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping he never hears about me, because Jonathan Clements also translated For the Barrel, and then, like, New Type just canned the whole thing. But apparently the oh, whole thing was translated. Right. And so I... I I don't want him to know about me. <laughs> don't want him to be able to compare yeah, notes. I would, uh, I would that, prefer, uh, yeah. I don't want anyone whose work I'm doing to ever know about me. Don't go to an anime Fox convention and tell Tomino that there are translations of Garzy's Wing by some pirate translator. He doesn't need to know that. <laughs> Clemens doesn't seem too online, so you should be in the clear there. And unfortunately, Tomino's not too online. I would love it if he was. If imagine, Tomino imagine were if, a poster. Oh, imagine if he just jumps on Twitter. Imagine, imagine the the shock waves uh, throughout anime Twitter. We can hope. Uh, he just doesn't have the. He just doesn't have the savvy. It'd be fun if he like like linked up with somebody, somebody who's like a little bit younger that he worked with. He would need someone. He would need an uh, like a American consultant with him, just you know, to bounce ideas back and forth. <laughs> he would need. He would need a, a Batman, but just for social media. There you go. <laughs> All comes full circle. All comes full circle. Now, yeah, no, get, get Okuchi to to <laughs> help him help him post. There you go. <laughs> Every tweet would be very bookended with the next tweet. You leave you wanting more. <laughs> End on a cliffhanger. All right, the good thing about this episode and having both you two on this episode is you ha have been scheduled for future Giant Robot FM appearances, so we can use this as an opportunity to plug that. Ethan, you have a few things to plug, Ethan. First, plug your appearance on One Year War Summer. You're going to be joining oh, us yeah. for this eight-hour stream. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited. Um, I'll be on to discuss MS Saga, which I'm currently replaying to sort of refresh my brain about uh, MS Saga. For those of you who, who don't know, is a uh, Japanese role-playing game for the PS2, sort of an uh, original story for the most part, like it's its own separate thing. It's it's tangentially connected to past timelines. It did a, its life beginning as uh, Turn A Gundam 2 at one point. Um but it's a real cool kind of like mostly traditional JRPG with a little bit of jank, but also some fun mech customization and some uh, unique uh, ideas on how to address like uh, combat by swapping in and out party members. Um, it's very much sort of that that peak um, uh, like PS2 era JRPG where they're really getting more comfortable with experimenting with uh, framing, but uh, the battles and that sort of thing but not like in like the famicom way of like oh no it's like a cool idea but the end product is ruinously difficult and impossible uh <laughs> i just it strikes a really cool balance and i'm excited to uh go discover the, the earlier chapters of that game with you guys because i think it's a real neat sort of uh artifact separate from uh the rest of being like a tie-in to an existing thing awesome so when you're done you've got a week to watch people play Armored Core 6. You better be watching PMC. I'm going to plug him in just a second. But after you're done watching PMC for, let's say, 16 hours this week, chill with us for 8 hours next Saturday. Help us raise awareness and hopefully some money for the podcast and watch us play MS Saga with some dope people. I will be posting the schedule of guests sometime next week, once that is finalized, as well as more information about goals and other stuff. I'm hoping we hit at least the minimal goal because I want to watch Master and Commander with my dear friend PMC. I'm going to do it in person, so I'll bring all my books. I don't have all 21 books, but I have like 13 of them. I'll have in the background. I don't have enough shelf space for that, Stephen. It's coming anyway. That and a bunch of Pepsi. Now, before I throw it to Ideon, Ethan, you did something recently with PMC. Why don't you tease that? Oh, yeah. Um, So, uh day and date uh most likely with this recording uh if not um saturday depending on when our, our dear sweet austin can uh actually get that finished together because it's a whole it might lot be saturday of work for PMC too. yeah well here's the thing though is i gotta edit this pod and and i can't i like it's gonna get done because i want to play Armored Core six so yeah pmc It'll, will be cursing my name for going yeah. on vacation as he's editing no um but uh, most likely, same same day as maybe a day later, uh, we uh, recorded an episode of Bomb Squad Movie Nights uh, discussing um, Pacific Rim, the Guillermo, 2013 Guillermo del Toro film, uh, like sort of super robot homage, which was a lot of fun. Uh, that movie is uh, a visual feast uh, and has a lot of reverence for its source material. Uh, and it was a lot of fun kind of digging into that, talking about mostly using it as a springboard to talk about old robot anime and robot jocks for me. I'm, I'm not if I'm being perfectly honest, um, but no, I liked it a lot. Awesome. Looking forward to watching that. You all do great work there. Thank you. Also, you're running a contest, Ethan. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, one last thing is, as my dog barks in the background, if you acknowledge it, that makes it less painful. Um, <laughs> no, um, uh, we're running a contest with Giant Robot FM uh, where it's just a simple Twitter, like follow us at Bomb Squad Productions, follow Giant Robot FM on, on twitter.com uh, and retweet the giveaway post. Uh, and you can win the complete Turn A Gundam on Blu-ray and um, 
a uh, high-grade Turn A Gundam model kit uh, for, of your very own. Um, so that'll be, you know, the complete television series and uh, a nice model. Maybe I'll throw in nippers if I, I'm going to ask the person, hey, have you ever built a model kit before? Do you, do you need supplies? Um, but uh, otherwise, yeah, that's uh, the fun thing, sort of a follow-up. We did one for Origin way back when, uh, and it's fun. I like doing giveaways. I like giving people things. It's fun. It's like giving a gift, but also I get, I get something out of it. So I guess it's not a gift. Whatever. It's fine. That's how we met online, Ethan, because you won the Code Geass giveaway on the old podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That's why I started re- listening to the old podcast was because I was like, I want a prize from these guys. I should probably actually <laughs> indulge in the content a bit more because I'd listened to like, one ep- like half of an episode at that point. And then I ended up listening to like all of your old catalog pretty much before uh, you relaunched Reborn, like Phoenix's as Giant Robot FM. Awesome. Now, Dan, you talked about the works that you're translating at the top of the episode, but you're going to be on another episode of Giant Robot FM talking about the Gunbuster games. I'm very excited for the research you're going to present to us about the four Gunbuster games, the erotic quiz game, the two PC Engine story games, and the PS2 game, all of which I'm excited to dive into. You could talk about typing Gunbuster, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there'll be there'll definitely be a segment for the Yo, weird shit. There's a typing gunbuster Rex- game as well. There's a typing gunbuster game. Damn, <laughs> oh, we gotta stream that. I didn't know about that one. Maybe I could. I don't want to talk about illegal activity on public, <laughs> but if you need a copy, I could maybe. Okay. I could probably yeah. hook you up. You tell me, tell oh, me yeah. which GameStop to go to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. PMC. Before we wrap this up, we have promotions, but also promote your week of streaming Armored Core 6 because the good people need to watch you play. Yes. And hopefully watch you beat many bosses yes. <laughs> in classic FromSoft fashion. In classic FromSoft... You know, I want to say that I primarily am a player of the PS1 Armored Core games, which really have very few large bosses. It is not a boss-centric p- t- uh, period of time. Uh, the first Armored Core games... And so going and knowing that there will be enormous bosses uh, is is going to be a change of pace for me, but not a change of pace for people who have been playing FromSoft's recent output. So kind of funny, right? I will be streaming over on twitch.tv slash PMC Trilogy, Armored Core 6, uh, hopefully a lot. Uh, you know, if, I'm, if I am successful in putting this recording out on August 25th, then... I will probably, at the time you're listening to this, be streaming the game on Twitch.tv. Hopefully, also doing some of that over the weekend and you know during the evening, uh, the following week. Of course, uh, leading up to One Year War Summer, which will also be on Twitch.tv/PMC Trilogy. And One Year War Summer, we already mentioned, will feature MS Saga. It's going to feature a bunch of other Gundam games uh, that we're sort of interested in checking out. I mean, we're, we're always, I'm making it a tradition that One Year War Summer will always start with Gundam The War for Earth as long as it continues because that is just how you should kick that thing off. Besides that, we'll be checking out MS Saga, uh, playing G Savior and marinating in all the cutscenes of G Savior. Uh, we'll be checking out, hopefully, Mobile Suit Gundam Unicorn, the PS3 from Soft Game. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, we'll also be checking out uh, SD Gundam Scad Hammers, a game about using the Wiimote to control the Gundam Hammer, which I'm very much looking forward to checking out. 
And we'll also be playing a little Lost War Chronicles, uh, one of the other side stories games. That one is a PS2 JP exclusive. So that should be a lot of fun as well. And as Steven mentioned, that's going to be an event. Just, you know, we're trying to generate some awareness, drive some people to our to Patreon and to give us some nice reviews and just, you know, kind of build up the podcast. It was a very successful event, I think, for us last year. Uh, and certainly we're hoping to repeat some of that and have a lot of fun uh, this year as well. Other things that Giant Robot FM is up to. Uh, I already mentioned, if you want to help us out, one of those ways you can do it is reviews on your podcast platform of choice. That's actually one of the components of when you're worth summer is that if you leave us nice reviews, uh, we're going to do some silly things. Uh, if you check our Twitter, you can see some of those posts indicating what those silly things might be. Uh, if you want to contribute to us more directly, you can go to patreon.com slash giant robot FM, where we offer various things. There's a patron exclusive discord. There's a bonus podcast series that of course is moon race wireless right now, where you can listen to us talk about turn a gun. And we just had moon race uh, wireless five go out. Uh, we will probably in the, uh, in the not too distant future, be recording moon race wireless six, same format as our regular main lab episodes. We bring on a guest. We talk about the episode and often talk about their history with Turn A Gundam and Gundam. Our, our most recent episode of it is really, really fun. Uh, we had uh, Nicole, a.k.a. Nan Apocalypse, on, and she really talked at length about her experience of fandom in the 2010s. Very cool episode. Uh, I always love getting a chance to help people air those stories of fandom. I think it really, really makes what we do worthwhile. Also, we've already talked a bit about our simulator podcast series where we give mecha video games the same treatment that we give mecha anime. We'll be covering the games of Gunbuster uh, on that episode where we'll have the Ideon. Also, of course, have uh, Rex Neighbors the Third on, uh, veteran, veteran weird uh, licensed video game expert Rex. Thank you, Rex. <laughs> uh, so, you know, please look forward to that. A few of those simulator episodes are already out on the main feed, like the Armored Core episodes or the Front Mission episodes. So if you're curious what that's like, check those out. And if you like that, you can come over to the patreon.com slash giantrobotfem and support us there. Uh, I think we already kind of maybe said this, but I want to make sure to emphasize besides my streaming Armored Core 6, our next series of mainline feed episodes after One Year War Summer will be discussion episodes on Armored Core 6. Um, or, so look forward to those. We intend to have regular friends on, reach out to maybe some people who aren't your regular friends. We hope to have a variety of takes over three or four weeks about just initial response to Armored Core 6, just kind of document and talk about uh, this moment in time in which, like, all of the follower list on my page is people playing Armored Core 6, which is different. They are not usually playing Armored Core. They usually play things like Resident Evil or whatnot. So it's a very interesting moment in time, uh, and we'll definitely be talking about it in future episodes of the podcast. I want to give credit for our graphic design to Dwarf S, credit to skin for our art and credit to fretzel hashtag ban fretzel for the music that we use all right at the, at the end of this podcast we have to put a legal warning if you drink fruit flavored milk with the expectation that will stave off space radiation sickness it will not work we won't we cannot be held legally accountable for that so let it be known yeah.